Welcome to the Narrators Podcast. I'm Robert Rutherford. And I'm Andrew Orvidal. This podcast collects stories that were told at the Narrators, a monthly storytelling event that features people telling true stories based on a theme. The show takes place on the third Wednesday of every month at the Buntport Theater in Denver, Colorado. These stories were recorded live on July 18th, 2014, as part of a special collaboration with Pivot TV and Rooftop Comedy. The theme of the evening was Taking a Stand. Your next storyteller, he's a member of the band uh, The Flowbots, and he's also a really good basketball player. Um, please welcome Johnny Five. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not technically a good basketball player. I, I'm better than I, I beat Andrew at one point. So I guess he's kind of elevating himself by making. But he beat me at horse. But then I beat him at one where we had to dribble. I think right. So I'm gonna tell you guys two stories here. Um, so we, my, my band Flowbots, had performed in in Las Vegas, and uh, show was over. I was walking back to the hotel room. And it was like that, that type of the, that part of the night where you're kind of like hoping something just spontaneously exciting will happen, you know? And so I get, get back to my room, just about to go to the bathroom, and I hear like women's voices giggling at the swimming pool. And then I hear someone say, excuse me. And I'm like, that is the exciting thing that I was waiting for. So I don't go, I stop peeing. I leave the room and they're like, do you have a towel? And I did have a towel. So I went and got a towel and I brought it out. And it, it became clear that one woman had dared her friend to skinny dip in the pool real quick. And I'm like, this is something for which I will donate a towel. Um, so I gave them the towel. The woman got in the pool for like three seconds. Suddenly all the, these floodlights came on and like nine security guards came um, and descended upon these two women. And they got out of the pool and kind of scampered away a little bit. And I thought, oh, you know, that's too bad, but, you know, they're leaving. Um, but I kind of followed along just as, as a good citizen. And um, they ended up going into the bathroom, and these nine security guards like cornered them. And I thought, this is looking like less less fun and sort of more um, more like it's something that maybe is messed up. So I stayed there a little bit, and, and these guys were cornering these women, and they were they were like taking them into some back room to interrogate them. And it was you know it was these like nine big white men and these two black women, one of whom is naked. And I thought this is really seeming more and more like an unjust situation. So I stayed there for a little while. My bandmates came back in the middle of it. Um, the, the security then came to me and said, you need to leave right now. I said, well, I'm staying in the hotel. They said, if you don't leave right now, we're kicking you out of the hotel. I said, okay, well, I, I'm staying here. And I, I tried to talk to the guy a little bit. He said, okay, you're gone. They sent me to the, the sidewalk, and then my tour manager had to like, go get my bag. And uh, so I went to another hotel and uh, explained the situation to the guy there. He's like, oh, if, if people want a skinny dip here, we'll let them, you know? <laughs> and I was like, that's what I'm talking about. Um, so, so the question is, how did I become so brave as to stand up for the rights of women to skinny dip in a hotel, room, in a, in a hotel pool in Las Vegas? Um, it's a good question. Um, so I'm going to go back a few years uh, to 1999. I was in college and tell you a story about when I went to Seattle and learned three lessons. Um, I went there um, because I was going there. Well, I went there ostensibly to protest the World Trade Organization. I really went there because I had a crush on Irene. Um, now, Irene and I, like, we were friends, we were kind of activists together, and we were in this kind of weird gray zone where I thought we were in a relationship, and she thought we were just, like, friends who were hooking up. And, like, I'd showed her, like, this chart, like, look, friends were hooking up, relationship, like, they're really the same thing. Uh, it hadn't convinced her yet, so it was kind of, like, awkward. Um, but I very much admired her, um, 
many months earlier, I'd made a tape, and I decided, like, I'm going to use this tape to, like, get messages out there to people. Um, and so I emailed Irene, like, what's the most important thing right now to let people know about? And she emailed me back, like, well, there's this thing called the Multilateral Agreement on Investment. It's, it's morphing into the World Trade Organization. It's really big and scary. It allows multinational corporations to kind of sue sovereign governments for any kind of regulation they don't like. Uh, you know, it's really big and scary. Here's some resources. And so I just took her email, printed it out, and put it in my liner notes, which when she saw, she was horrified. Um, anyway, so we were going there to protest the World Trade Organization. And there was a group of us, Irene and I, um, my friend Chaz, our friend Sarah, and then Gwen and Greg, who were a like the kindest couple in the world. Um, so we go there, and we go to this mass training where we're not just going to march. We've actually signed up to like physically shut down the World Trade Organization, so forming a human chain around it. And we go to what, in my experience, is like the most well-organized training I've ever been to. Uh, it's run by a group called the Direct Action Network. And we go in there. It's mostly anarchist-oriented folks. And they train us in physically shutting down this or- this the intersections around where the uh, WTO is meeting. They also train us in something called jail solidarity, where if you get arrested, here's what's going to happen. You're not going to bring IDs. You're not going to give your name. You're going to have two people stay off-site so they can call your parents. They give us this whole training. Um, it gets us really inspired, and we feel really empowered. And they also say, this is your intersection. Like, you guys and these two other groups, like these church people from Kansas and this other group, you know, you guys are shutting down, like, Pike and Pine or whatever. I don't think those intersect, but um, do they? Anyone from Seattle? Okay, then that wasn't the intersection, but in one of those P streets and then a number. Um, so the next day we go, and we, you know, we get there early, five in, the, 5 in the morning. We go in the intersection. It's weird because cars want to go through there, and we're not letting them. And, um, and we're there. We, we lock ourselves. like Some of our hands are locked together in tubes, and we're there for the duration of the day. Um, and the few tense points, one of them, somebody had to pee. Like one of us had to pee, and our hands are locked together. So somebody, like we hadn't somehow thought of this. Somebody else had to like help them pee into a bottle. Um, I don't know why the rest of us didn't pee, but the other thing that happened was that at one point the, the police who were watching us um, started to suit up into their riot gear, and it looked like they were going to break us up. And at that exact moment, we looked up the hill, and this entire like parade of people with puppets and like black block anarchists who look like ninjas, they all come like filling in the intersection. So suddenly there's 300 people in this intersection, and the police took their riot gear off. And that felt pretty cool. It felt like some Ewok part of Star Wars type of shit. Um, so that first day was a success. We shut down the WTO. And I learned that day three, uh, one lesson three times. Um, when we walked into that intersection, we felt like, wait, can we really do this? It's like, well, we are doing it, so apparently we can do it. Um, at some point I heard that a city council member, I think, had been arrested, someone who was you know, on our side. They'd been arrested, and I thought, well, can they arrest a city council member? Well, they, they did, so apparently they can. Um, and then the biggest thing was, can we really like shut down a, you know, this huge institution um, and affect the proceedings? And well, we did do it, so apparently we can. So that was my first lesson about power. Um, that night, well, first of all, that night there was all the stuff on the news about people breaking Starbucks windows and tear gas. I'd seen no tear gas. I'd seen no windows broken. But, so that was what the rest of the country saw. Um, but I, I attended probably the most amazing meeting I've ever seen in my life. This woman named Starhawk, who was a Wiccan and an activist, she was leading a group like twice as big as this group here with no mic, no agenda, and it was all by consensus. And the question was, what are we going to do tomorrow? She facilitated that entire meeting, um, and as she was doing it, people were running in saying, you know, the police are tear-gassing our brothers down the block. We've got to go out there now. And she said, you guys want to go, go. Everyone else stay here. We'll do the meeting. But that happened every five minutes till it became clear, like someone's actually trying to interrupt this meeting. 
Um, but it was just pretty amazing to see her do that. We decided the next day we'd be marching through downtown Seattle. Bill Clinton was coming to town. They declared downtown a no-protest zone. Um, we decided that doesn't exist, um, so we decided to do that. And um, next day we march. We'd march this way, hit a wall of police, go this way, hit a wall of police, go this way. Eventually the police formed two walls, which was smart of them. Um, <laughs> and so it became clear, all right, it's time to decide, are we going to get arrested or not? And... A lot of people immediately knew they were going to and stood, you know, sat down and locked arms. And we decided, our little consensus group said, you know, we have to either all, we're all in or we're all out. That's how consensus works. A few people didn't want to, so we stood over to the, like, ready-to-disperse area. We're standing there along with some of the organizers, people who had children, other people that were just walking by and kind of got caught up in this. They arrested everybody who was, sit- who was seated, um, and then it was, like, time for us to disperse. And then the police kind of huddled, and they ran towards us and started arresting us. Again, can they do that? Well, they did do that, so I guess they can do that. Um, we literally failed to disperse. We tried, but we failed. Um, so we were put into these buses, and we spent about 16 hours on the buses. And I'll try not to make this actual talk 16 hours, but um, that time on the bus was actually this very amazing second set of lessons, um, also about empowerment. That we, we got put on the buses with these you know, like plastic handcuffs, one police officer in the front, a big accordion-style bus, and all of us sitting in our handcuffs. Some people who were more seasoned started pack- passing around nail clippers, and so handcuffs started coming off, but we're all holding our arms behind our backs, like, you know, to pretend we still have them on. But some people are like, I don't want to pretend, so they just get out their granola bars from their backpacks, start passing those around. <laughs> and then soon, like, everyone's doing that, and it's like, yeah, we're really, we're really not pretending to have our handcuffs on, are we? And then we start kind of walking around, and still it's just one, one officer in the front, um, eventually, we're taking down like the, the the advertisements, like the cardboard, and like writing no WTO and putting them on the windows, and it became clear. All right, I guess this is cool. Be, you know, there's kind of a lot of us. Um, we're parked next to the holding cell at this point. Um, there's media all over the buses filming us, like watching us put these signs up. There's a lawyer outside discussing our situation with us, and we all feel pretty safe. And so we're there for hours, and our mission is like to stay on this bus and kind of gum up the process a little bit. Um, we're looking over at the next bus. People are like, there's less people there, so they're like swinging on the bars. Um, you know, we're waving to them. At one point, we did this chant that I wrote, and like, I think it was on TV, and it was like the best moment of my life. Um, and there's, there's amazing people on this bus. There's, you know, religious folks who were there for the Jubilee movement. There's this guy, Hop Hopkins, this environmentalist. Um, and then there's this one of the main trainers from the Direct Action Network who became legendary. His name was David Solnit. Um, I encountered him two, you know, one time doing something badass, and then I heard about a badass story. I went to go to the bathroom. The designated bathroom was like the, the hole in the accordion. You know, like in those buses, like right where the accordion part of the bus is, there's kind of like a gap. So that was our bathroom. So I went over there to go to the bathroom, and there was like this mound of clothing that was talking. And I heard this voice, and it was like, you know, I don't think the question is, uh, who's breaking windows? I think the question is, who's breaking our planet? Using the... I'm like, wait, David Solon is doing an interview on a cell phone next to the bathroom. And he was down, you know, he was like this doing his interview. Um, and uh, several years later, in a different, a different protest, I was told that he, was, he had all the information about, um, you know, everyone who was going to be protesting in his backpack. The, the police had sort of, like, surrounded everybody. They formed a drum circle next to a manhole. He had lifted up the manhole cover and, you know, run away through the sewers. So anyway, he was, he was kind of legendary to me. Um, meanwhile, outside, Katya, the lawyer, was apparently, they, they like had a thing going. 
And I heard stories about her that she'd broken into a nuclear facility and like hammered on the things and planned to get arrested, but they didn't arrest her, so she like broke out of it and then didn't have a ride. Um, anyway, so like this is little 20-year-old me, 22-year-old me, is hearing these legends, pretty excited. Excited to be there with these people. But soon they, get, they decide, you know what, we don't want you on the bus. They drive the bus around the building, there's no media, they start dragging people off. I just walk off when they tell me to walk off, but other people resisted. And I, you know, when, when those people got brought in, you know, people were hogtied, people had foam from where the pepper spray was in their eyes. So it became a little less exciting, a little more traumatic. Like, what's going to happen to us? Um, eventually, we get put into holding cells. And I have like three quick little memories from the holding cell. Um, one was that you, know, you could actually kind of sleep comfortably if you laid on your back and put your feet like up on the, the, the bench. Um, the second was that my friend Chaz was across the hall. We couldn't hear each other, but we both knew sign language because one of our friends was deaf. So we're signing like across the hall in jail, which we thought was amazing. Um, but we had nothing really to say. But the third thing was this moment where they're about to take us to process us. And I'm looking at these other guys, and I'm like, all right, guys. So when they take us to process us, like, who remembers what we're supposed to do? They're like, what do you mean? I'm like, from the training, from, like, the jail solidarity training, what are we supposed to do? And they're like, what jail solidarity training? I was like, wait, didn't anyone else hear? Oh. That's when I realized, like, I was the leader in that room. Not because I wanted to be, but because I was the only one who had been to that training. And for some reason, that always sticks with me about leadership was like, you don't necessarily choose it, but suddenly you're the leader. So I said to them, all right, guys, we go in there. You don't give your names. You just let them process you. Don't speak. Just come right back out. We did that. They sent us all to our cells. And this was like our like, cell cell. Like, now this is going to be your cell till something else happens, which who knows when that is. Um, so I'm there with some guy named Elijah who was actually great. There's kind of some annoying people there. He wasn't one of them, so that's cool. Um, <laughs> My friend Chaz is right next door with a guy that we're calling Bruce Elbow because he had a bruised elbow. Um, we couldn't like talk because there was, it was walls and I mean, it was like a very comfortable jail experience, I think, as jail experiences go. But we couldn't actually speak that way, so we had to like stand on the toilet and talk through the vent, which again, I was, part of me is like, this is kind of cool, technically. Um, so anyway, in jail, you know, we spent, I think, three days in... We were in custody four days total, but during those three days in that cell, I think they do put tranquilizer in your food. Like, I was told that, and it felt like that, because we basically just slept. Um, at one point, I wrote a rap. At one point, I made a little comic book. Again, I was like, yeah, I should be doing art here in the cell, you know? <laughs> um, and it, it, the comic, of course, was about Irene. It was, like, me falling asleep and, like, s- like meeting her in the dream space or something. Uh, meanwhile, Irene and Sarah were in the women's jail, like, with Starhawk. They've, like, converted to being Wiccan. Um, <laughs> Sarah has eczema, so she's used, like, butter on her, like, on her skin because there's no lotion. Um, and then our poor friends, Gwen and Greg, they were the people, like, f- flashback a little bit. They'd woken up that day, turn on the TV, and the first thing they saw was, like, us specifically being arrested. And they spent the next four days, like, on the phone with all of our parents, which was their job. Um, which is kind of the, the shittier of the jobs, if you ask me. No, I'm not saying because, n- not because of the conversation quality of my dad, but just because some people might have been worried. It wasn't a, a it, was, it wasn't a messed up job. Sorry for saying shitty. Um, anyway, several days later, we got out. And we got out because of the, the third lesson, which is just planning, training. 
the plan worked. 500 of us didn't give, didn't give our names. The lawyers made arguments. They said, let these folks out. You don't want to keep them in your jail forever. Um, it's going to be too hard. Just let them out with time served. We got out with time served, which means that's it. We got out. Where our names were not. Um, we didn't, it wasn't on our record unless we did something in the next six months. I mean, I'm sure they like, probably kept our names somewhere, like somebody. But technically, we're, our records were all clean. And it was incredibly, incredibly empowering for all of us, for I think everyone who experienced it. Like, this was something we went into, we got off kind of like, we came out of it very, very empowered. Um, we went back to campus, started, you know, rallying people for the next event. And that sense of empowerment has very much stayed with me for a long time. Um, a few other little epilogues. Irene and I, we, she eventually admitted we were in a relationship. Um, <laughs> but then eventually we just became friends. But she's doing great. Um, <laughs> We also, you know, it did make an impact. Like, people who associate with, um, with global finance will say that was a turning point, um, which felt very good. Um, also, many years later, we got, like, paid. At, we got money for it. We, there was a class action lawsuit, and everyone got $3,000 um, because they actually didn't allow us to disperse. So it actually was, they, weren't, they shouldn't have arrested us. But um, that money, at the time, I was starting this organization called Fight With Tools, now called Youth on Records. The money went to that. Um, and then one last piece, a few years ago, my band and some other folks were organizing this rally in support of Iraq veterans against the war. And part of the rally was that there was going to be a concert, and then like 7,000 people from the Coliseum would go march in an unpermitted march. And I remember thinking, like, well, where's the training? Like, how is everyone going to know what to do? Like, they're like, oh, there's this guy coming. It'll be fine. Like, there's a guy coming that day. I don't think it's going to be fine just with one person in an hour. I got there, like, Rage Against the Machines there, the veterans are there, volunteers. And I look, and I see the guy and his freaking David Solnit, the dude from the cell phone conversation, and he did train everybody in 45 minutes, and that made me feel pretty good. So I say all this, I know this is, this is, I could give lots of caveats because this is like a very rosy, rosy, like romanticized picture of this, um, of this type of experience, but I actually feel comfortable doing that because when I think about what's happening in Gaza right now, when I think about mass incarceration, when I think about all of the different issues that really, really need our attention desperately, I actually, I feel good about encouraging everyone out there uh, to find some way to take a stand. So, thank you very much. That was Johnny Five. We did a special narrators at the Music Summit, um, I don't know, like six months ago. And uh, your final storyteller was one of the musicians who did it, and she, uh, she blew every way. She was the best. So... Um, when we were like planning this special event, narrators, we were like, oh, who can we get who's awesome uh, to close it out? And then luckily, we got that person. Um, she's a uh, recording art- artist on Doomtree. Please welcome Dessa. When you land in Istanbul airport... Um, the trick is to completely disregard all of the posted signage and to just do as everyone else is doing. And so you will be pushed along towards a very distant desk where there is a passport control agent that you cannot see. And as the line continues, it kind of slowly forms a really orderly, snaking progression towards this singular desk where he is waiting for all of you. And when you take stock of the other people who are waiting in this line with you. They are so conspicuously global that it looks like there is no way that this is a real line and that it has been like 
curated by a very high buck ad agency for like Pepsi or <laughs> or like the World Cup, you know, like everybody is chatting very happily in their native tongue and wearing their traditional garment and um, there's there's like Australians who are sun-kissed and wearing stupid leather necklaces and there the Germans who've like already set their watches to the local time. <laughs> And there are Italians who are talking with such abandon and vigor that they are either like in the throes of very new love or a very old blood feud. <laughs> and there are like British married couples who look like they haven't met yet. <laughs> and there are, there are Arab women. There are Arab women um, of, of all ilk. You know, so you see some really colorful head wraps and then you see, all the way up to, you know, total... Um, total burkered figures, you know, who are, who are seeing the world essentially through a very small window of, a, of mesh on a black veil. I was traveling by myself, and I was standing right behind a Swedish couple. And when I was a teenager, my best friend was Swedish, and I pestered her into teaching me a little bit of it, which I had forgotten most of. But I was standing really, like, uncomfortably close to these Swedish people who are not in the habit of, like, really enjoying Americans standing all that close to them. <laughs> Because I just, even though I couldn't follow their conversation, I just kind of liked the kick of recognition that your brain gets, you know, when you hear a word that you recognize. And so to eavesdrop on a conversation when you have that level of language ability is like listening to a woman read a mad magazine to you. So <laughs> this woman is like, I think when we go to the hotel, we should get our plural nouns and verb and then later verb. And then I was thinking we could find, like, a nice little adjective noun and then maybe conjugate a verb in the future conditional tense. <laughs> yeah. That sounds awesome. And then, and then past her in the line, there was a woman whose ethnicity I couldn't determine. But it looked like many years ago she had been in an accident in which she'd lost her left eye. And she didn't wear a, uh, she didn't wear a patch. It had just been sewed closed. And so as the line progresses towards this very distant mythological desk where there is a man with a stamp, um, we passed each other, you know, half a dozen, a dozen times as we're snaking by. And she looked to me like a playing card in two suits. Like she was dealt eye open and eye closed, and then eye open and eye closed. When I got to uh, the city proper in Istanbul, uh, I knew that I had wanted to find candied eggplant. A friend of a friend had gone, said it was like this amazing shit, never to be missed if you're in Istanbul. So I was like, word, I'm going to find that. So I went to all these cafes, and I couldn't find it. And finally, on the third cafe, um, I did see a little sign for another thing that the Lonely Planet had mentioned called Iren. If somebody here has been to Turkey and knows how to um, speech stickers, this whole shit is just going to drive you crazy. You should go like, get a drink right now, because nothing is going to be right. I think it's called Iran or Iran. It was like a watery yogurt drink. I read about it on the Lonely Planet. I was game. Tried to buy it. The young kid behind the counter didn't have any uh, English skills. So we did the point and smile thing. And he was so delighted, I think, to see a woman, like a grown woman, drink her first cup full of like this very staple food. And he just said, no, like, just, I don't want the money, just take it. But he, he called in all these friends from the street to just watch <laughs> me drink it. And I, you know, I made like a good like, show, like, mmm. <laughs> I love your beverage. <laughs> And I drink, I drink it, I set it down, and then um, I wave to the boy and like his, his merry gentleman, and I, I set out on the street, and what had been kind of a mild yogurty aftertaste turned into something much m- more bitter, 
And then something like definitely acrid, and I was like, I hate your fucking beverage. <laughs> This is horrible. And then it became really like pronounced. Like, I don't know if you live in a one bedroom apartment and very infrequently breach your tub in a non ventilated space. It was like that. I was like, This is. And I was so busy mentally writing like a scathing beverage review that I do not realize that I am being tear gassed. Like, the beverage is fine. Yeah. It's a lovely little drink. I was like, I hate this beverage. This beverage is awful. And I look up, and like, everyone is running, and their eyes are watering.、Um, so, at the beginning of May this year,、um, A mine collapsed in a town in Turkey called Soma, and it killed several hundred miners. And this has been a, a recurring problem for Turkey. They have really, really shitty safety regulations, and so they, they,、uh, there were protests that erupted in several cities throughout Turkey, and particularly in Istanbul, which is the big one, right? And two blocks away from where I was enjoying this、um, traditional drink, there were marchers on、uh, Taksim Square, which is probably, probably familiar. The larger picture, however, is that for the past year, a lot, of, a lot of protests have happened in Turkey. And in part, there's just like this palpable dissatisfaction amongst a pretty large contingent of that population with the way that their government is working. And that dissatisfaction kind of functions like a gas leak. It just doesn't take much of a spark to send the next protest off. So almost anything, it feels like, will send a stream of people towards Taksim. And,、um, Probably with pretty good reason. I gotta admit, I, I'm not a history scholar, but、um, their, their Prime Minister, Erdogan, just seems insane. So, <laughs> he's nuts. So, there's these, there are these protests that are happening. I, meanwhile, I'm, I'm heading back to my, to my hotel. I try to log onto my computer to figure out what the fuck is going on.、Uh, YouTube is down, Facebook has been censored. And, There's a lot of opportunity for these sparks to set off these,、uh, these processions in Turkey because, as it's often said, there's a, there's a really big kind of cultural seam there between the East and the West. There's a lot of mosques, there's a lot of bars. YouTube and Facebook have been censored by the government, but most people who are savvier than me have like pretty easy workarounds so they can stay really connected、um, to global news and culture. And a lot of the cafe waiters who I dealt with had beautiful English, and then I'm sure that they had beautiful Japanese that I didn't know about too. And、um, I was talking to one of them, and he was mentioning some bands he dug. I was like, oh yeah, dude, this guy's really hip. And、uh, he says, oh, but my favorite stuff is still the old stuff. He's like, I really like Get Up Set Up. And I was like, oh, I don't, I don't know Get Up Set Up. And he was like, everybody knows. And I was like, fuck it, I'm not going to get into a, like, a Brooklyn style pissing contest about how, who knows this band. Don't get Williamsburg on me, man. We're in Istanbul. But he was like, get up, set up. Bob Marley. Get up, set up. Set up. Oh, I do know that song, bro. That's a good song. That's tight. That's a great song. And Lonely Planet, as they're,、uh, as they're demonstrating. The, the cultural seam that runs right through Turkey. One of the things that they'll often mention is that there are women in nightclubs in,、um, in Istanbul in like mini minis, you know, the super, super tight, form fitting stuff, banging bodies, and there's also、uh, full, full burqa veiling. And I, I did find that point interesting for a couple reasons. First is probably the pedestrian one, which was I was a woman traveling alone and I wanted to make sure I knew the prevalent. Prevalent cultural norms, so I didn't inadvertently you know, step on toes or, or look like an ass or offend somebody by virtue of my ignorance.
The second reason was because I think, I think veiling has become um, kind of like a shorthand indicator where we can place someone on a spectrum of orthodoxy. So someone who wears her hair bare, we'd assume, is probably less conservative from someone who wears like a colorful headscarf is probably less conservative from somebody who wears the hijab covering her bosom. Less conservative than the niqab, you know, which covers the nose down. Less conservative still uh, than, the, than the ultimate stop on the veil train. Um, <laughs> the complete burqa, uh, sometimes with, with, uh, with gloves to make sure that no inch of skin is is visible. <clears throat> My only experience with a veil, personally, was part of my communion training. I grew up in a Catholic family and became uh, atheist pretty quick, but <laughs> I was really into the idea of the veil for communion. I was like, this is adult-sanctioned pretty seriously heavily financed dress up. Like, this is bridal. This is princess. My mom's a fucking take me shopping for this. This is tight. So I was really motivated. I was really motivated to get communed. And when you buy your communion dress, you go to a store that's like the Sam's Club for Catholics, where there's like, ah, it's just the quantity of it is kind of unsettling because you see all these beautiful veils and all these beautiful dresses and that part's awesome. But on the other hand, it's like the, the wafer, which is uh, transformed in the ceremony of the Eucharist to be the body of Christ is like on sale in bulk, you know? It's kind of, yeah, it's like going back to the, like the Tooth Fairy's apartment and seeing like a bathtub full of incisors. It's just, you know, you don't feel as special. But I pressed on. Generally, I'm a pretty good student. I was a super lousy student in communion class for three reasons. First, when you're given the body of Christ, you're supposed to say, amen. When you are practicing to receive the body of Christ as a kid who's being communed, they give you a piece of a donut. Donuts are delicious. <laughs> and I had been receiving a very different catechism for the entirety of my life before this class, which is when somebody gives you something delicious, you say, thanks. <laughs> so I kept accidentally, like, instead of like, piously saying amen, being like, thank you, like around a mouthful of donut. And the religious instructor was really confused by how long it took me to untrain them. The second, the second issue was that I was praying wrong. I had a, a, like the religious instructor came and corrected my technique. And he said it, I was messing up like this. So he would find me praying, um, like very fervently, with my hands kind of like creepily clenched as hard as I could clench. Like my teeth and my jaw were really into it. And he said... Uh, Okay, honey, God can't hear you when you pray like that. You have to flatten your hands and, you know, place them gently on one another, which I don't know how you could tell a kid that and expect them to come to any other conclusion than, like, you have to aim your laser prayers. Because if you're doing this, you're going to hit somebody. Then... Uh, the, thing that finally, the thing that finally got me kicked out of, of communion school was that I came to class in a pair of skorts. Pair of skorts? Sing I came in a skort. I came in a, a skort. I came in... You know the, the hybrid garment that is part skirt and part short? I came in that. 
and it, it fell to like a couple inches above my knees and I was a pretty gangly kid and they were sea green and I came and the religious instructor saw what I had come in and he stood me up in front of the class and he stopped the class and he said, uh, he explained the sin of my, of my dress and he said I, I couldn't stay. So he put me in the playground, called my dad to come pick me up. My dad comes, by that time class is over, my dad's like, why the hell are you in the playground? And I was like, I got kicked out of my and he, he talks to the instructor. And my dad didn't, my dad didn't go off in, in public very often. Uh, and it was kind of a thrill to see, because he was doing it on my behalf, you know? And he talked to the religious instructor, and he was like, tell me why you did this. And he said, we have a rule about wearing skirts. And, um, and I'm like, technicality! <laughs> um, but my dad was like, not the point. And the, the religious instructor was like, if we let the young girls wear skirts, then the older girls will be tempted to wear skirts. And if the older girls wear skirts, then the older boys will be tempted to sin against them. It's a weird line of logic, but it's one that I think actually plays out very prevalently on both sides of the veiling debate in this country and in European countries, which is to say to protect women against the degradation or oppression or violence that men would do against them, we have to very carefully restrict the freedoms of women. You know, if you don't veil, a dude's going to think you're hot and is going to attack you. And if, you, if we permit you to veil, then a guy's going to oppress you and make you wear a veil. And there's just not too much room for, for female agency there. So f- countries like France have, have passed laws against veiling, that women aren't allowed to, uh, to veil in like, public institutions or governmental jobs. And some, um, some employers have followed suit. So you know, if you were to Google um, the veil debate, you know, you'd see that there's lots of message boards where women are saying, oh, I want to veil, but i got to feed my kids. And other women are saying, okay, well, let's weigh it out. You know, your obligation to veil as you understand it to your obligation to be a provider. Intense shit, you know? But it seems like on both sides of that debate, we are curtailing what a woman can do for fear of what a man might. I had uh, very few experiences with women who, who wore the hijab, but I paid close attention when I was near enough to one in, in Istanbul. And there was one moment when I was walking towards a tram, and I was walking right next to a woman who was wearing the full, the full hijab. No, she had the, the niqab on, so I could see the little crescent of skin um, beneath her eyebrows and above the bridge of her nose. And um, I'm kind of <laughs> watching, watching her just to, I don't know, just to see what it's like in person when it's not on TV and mediated by all sorts of people who have their own interests and I was watching and then she just bolted, she just bolted because she was late for something and so the tram was leaving and she was just like took out. and like these silver badass Nikes were flashing from under the, <laughs> the hem of her veil I was like that is not what I had expected <laughs> might happen in that moment and it was it was hard not to wonder. Um, it was hard not to wonder what, what people thought of me. I would say I dressed pretty similarly to how I how I am now. I tried not to show shoulder, um, but I did show my arms, and I wondered. I wondered if people. I don't know. I guess I wondered if they were judging me. And when I would put on my makeup in the morning before I left, I was also wondering about judging me. I thought, you know, I, I wear blush almost every day, 
and I was putting on blush, and I was curling my eyelashes, and I was putting mascara on my eyelashes. And I thought, I wonder if in some way you could consider makeup to just be like a veil that Western women wear right against the skin, that like a lot of us would be as uncomfortable meeting strange men with bare faces in some ways, you know? And the decisions that we make about modesty, you know, about what feels right to cover and what feels right to show, like those aren't decisions that we arrive at personally, usually. Those are, those are culturally informed, obviously. And the standards of modesty are really relative. Like things that are going to be, you know, totally acceptable for streetwear in Brazil, where it's hot as shit, are not going to probably totally be acceptable in Oslo, you know? <laughs> The standards of modesty vary, how much skin particularly a woman can show, but I feel like our, our, our perceived obligation to adhere to those standards is pretty universal. Like, as I was, as I was Googling some information about, about modesty in veil culture, I found an article in the Seattle Times uh, from right after the September 11th attacks in which first emergency responders to anthrax scares in New York were freaking out about Americans' unwillingness to like give up their adhesion to their standards of modesty when they thought they were poisoned by anthrax. So it was like, hey, left side of Bunport Theater, you've all been poisoned by anthrax. To save your own lives, I need you to go out into the parking lot and strip. And I was like, I'm good. <laughs> I wrote down the headlines so I could, we'd rather die than take our clothes off, is what, the, is what the headline was in Seattle. So I feel like sometimes it's easy for us to be like, you guys are weird about modesty over there. And, and, maybe not reflect on our, how, how dearly we hold that because it looks really different here. Uh, while, I was in, while I was in Istanbul, the, the protests continued to intensify, so there, were more, there was more tear gas kind of wafting through the air. Um, I saw, you could hear them before they hit usually, so there was time to like duck into somebody you know, who was selling postcards. You'd be like, I'll take two postcards <laughs> just here off the main street. There was protesters who came with red flags, and I took pictures of it, and I put it on Instagram, and, and a, a Turkish follower told me that they were the youth party. And then there was another protest that came through, uh, and nobody clapped for them, so I thought they might be unpopular. And they were all young men and very well-disciplined, and they had a green flag with a red wolf head on it with bared teeth. And they all marched with their right hands up like this, making a little wolf head. And uh, when I asked what that was, I just went into a cafe, and I said, what does this mean? And he said, okay, put your hand down. And I did. <laughs> And he said that uh, that was a particularly nationalistic party and that they were really against the Kurds. And that it was like a lifelong, constant struggle in Turkey to find out like, who's really Turkish and who's just been like, living there for 10,000 years. You know? <laughs> there, there was one protest that I think was the most popular where everyone in the solidarity with the miners and their families kind of removed all the, pro the, the trappings of partisanship. And there was just this huge silent line of people who smeared, um, who smeared charcoal on their faces and wore miners' hats. And then that whole day, you'd get on a metro and then you'd step out of the metro and there were silence in a full platform because everyone was lying down and playing dead. I think right before I left Turkey was when, um, when they turned the, the water hoses on the, on the protesters. I met one demonstrator, his name was Jansen. He was a fan of my band. And he said, hey, I'll show you around Turkey. What do you want to do? I said, I don't want to get tear gassed. 
I do want to eat a candied eggplant. And so we walked around. We walked around and we talked about his experiences as a demonstrator. And he said that at the very beginning, you know, a year ago when the protest started, it was people from all walks of life and they all brought whatever skills they had in their civilian life to bear in Taxim. And so you had people who owned like little restaurants, you know, and they'd come with like all this hot food and they would just pass it out. And then there was people who had coffee. And then when the government first started to try to disband the protest using tear gas, the chemistry students all got together and filmed on their iPhones instructional videos about how to make cheese easy remedies for tear gas using uh, bottled water and um, a digestive medicine that had talc in it. And that was actually when the government shut down YouTube is when the instructional videos started to spread. And he said that uh, he, he dates a woman whose, whose hair is unveiled. And he said that there are parts of Istanbul where, um, where he, won't, he won't hold her hand for fear that you know, she might be a, a victim of violence there. I can't speak to how accurate or well-based that fear is, but it was something that I noted we found the fucking eggplant. We sit down. It's like a celebratory moment. And the egg, it was not expected. They're very small. Um, they're unripe, so they're super hard. But the Turkish, like, have some weird alchemic abilities with honey that they can infuse honey into. Like, if you left a Turkish person your iPhone <laughs> and came back to get your iPhone and said, do whatever you want with it while I'm gone, they would have infused your iPhone with so much honey that it would just, like hang limp you know what I mean like, like Salvador Dali, Dali style like over the edge of your countertop it was amazing it was amazing before I left Turkey one of the last things I did is I went to a hammam um, I'd heard that word I didn't know what it meant it's a public bath the way that I did it anyway it means that someone else washes you yeah so you go in you pay the money that is the last person you will see for an hour and a half that speaks English. You, she gives you a token. She does not tell you what the token is for. And a pair of pennies, and you're pretty sure what the, you know what that's for. Another woman comes and just pushes you at a locker. You take off all your clothes because you're pretty sure that's what you're expected to do. You put on the panties. Another woman comes and yells at you. And then she leaves. And then you wait naked in a room in your panties. Another woman comes and takes your token and leaves. Eventually, someone comes you are given the distinct impression that you are late for something that you had not scheduled. <laughs> she takes you into this interior room. It's all made out of marble. And in it, there's a central circular pedestal. She puts your naked body on this marble pedestal. There's room for a few others, too. She speaks to you in a few languages until you respond. You know, so she's like, Buenos dias, como esta? Guten tag. Hello, hello, hi. Okay, that's me. <laughs> me. She says, okay. And she's very nice. I really like this lady. And um, she speaks a little bit of English and she puts on these gloves. Like, she's kind of pantomiming what she's going to do. These gloves are, um, I don't know, they're like the very, 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 very gentle sandpaper. And so... <laughs> She lays you on the thing and she smacks me on the ass. And I went, oh. She says, ready? And I said, yes. And she takes this bucket of um, a very warm, vaguely oily, soapy water and she pours it all over you. And it's very heavy soap. It's very viscous and, and lathery already. And she rubs you with these, with these gloves, and she's singing, and it's a marble room. And so the echo lasts a really, really long time, and it, 
becomes, it, seems, it starts to seem impossible that there's only one person in this room with all of the singing that is happening. And every once in a while, she'll lean close and you can hear it. The song as it's coming right out of her mouth. And now it seems like there's the women in the ceiling and there's the women on the walls and then there's the one here. It's, I am an atheist, as I mentioned. I have never felt as ready for death. I'll leave it there because I don't know what else you say to that. It's a first-person sensation kind of thing. But she says, okay, we're done, 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 you know, and I, and I get up and I'm kind of woozy. There's another Western girl and we're both kind of like zombied out. I go, are we cool? <laughs> I think we're cool. And she puts me on a bench and I don't have a token and I still got my panties and I don't know what the next step is. And this woman just comes to me with a bucket full of green mud. Hello! And I say, hi! And she takes a paintbrush and she paints my, my face with this green mud. And I don't know if this is a ritualistic. And she says, facial! I said, oh, okay, yeah, I do know this. I do know this one. And she wraps my hair up in a towel and I'm sitting on this bench. And I realize uh, that it's probably gotten late, although there's no immediate uh, light source from outside. And I'm just waiting for the next woman to come and, um, and touch me or yell at me. <laughs> and... I see that there's a mirror, and I feel so relaxed that I don't even want to move. And in some ways, I'm thinking, you know, for as, for as much talk there is and as much um, concern and as much controversy as there, as there is about the way the Muslim women's bodies are treated in public, God, they treat their bodies really differently in private. I mean, real talk, like, I don't expect that I will ever be washed by another person until I'm near enough to death not to be able to do it myself. That's not how we do it here, man. And I lean over in the mirror, and I think, oh, my God. Because for all practical purposes, like, my hair is wrapped, and I am wearing a burqa of mud, you know, so I can just see the crescent from beneath my eyebrows to above the bridge of my nose. I thought, you know, I don't know that there, that there is a singular truth about veiling. Like sometimes I think it is an expression of beautiful faith. And sometimes it's probably a symbol of very severe oppression. But unless you're the one standing in the veil, I don't know how the hell you would tell those two apart. <coughs> and it's a hard idea to even examine as someone from far away because we bring our culture with us. You know, it's like the word here. It just follows you wherever you go. And it's very difficult to be able to make a cogent statement about your own culture through the experience as being mediated by your own culture. It's like trying to taste your own mouth. Culture is like honey. It just gets everywhere. The permeation is absolutely complete. And so to try to tell which of the women are wearing a veil because it is the best expression of a deep love and which of the women are wearing it, wearing it by threat of violence, it's very difficult to know which side is one eye open and which eye is sewn shut. It's very difficult. And so, as I'm thinking about this stuff, finally the woman who, is, who comes in, who has arrived to yell at me, and she's trying to inform me that they have been closed, and I am just a lost American sitting <laughs> on a bench for no blessed reason. And it is time to get up. Set up, go to your locker, whatever it is, whatever the hell you came here in to protect you from sun and rain in the eyes of men and the eyes of your God.
The Narrator's Podcast is recorded and produced by Ron Doyle. The Narrator's Podcast is brought to you by these amazing sponsors. The great guys at Illegal Pete's and Greater Than Records, who in addition to providing rad burritos all over town, provide great local music and comedy. Check out the appropriately named Sexy Pizza at either of their locations in Capitol Hill or Old South Pearl, or on their website, sexypizzaonline.com. And finally, by the internet superheroes at Commerce Kitchen, who provide internet marketing solutions and search engine optimization for all your e-commerce needs. Check them out at commercekitchen.com. For more information about the narrators and to listen to past episodes, go to the narratorspodcast.com. Thanks for listening.